I'm Julia Gerlach. Welcome to this episode of the Strip Till Farmer podcast series, supported by the Andersons. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Thanks again to the Andersons for their support of this podcast series. A nutrient management program is essential to maximize crop productivity and yields. The key is providing the right nutrients at the right time throughout the growing season. The Andersons high yield programs make it easy to plan a season long approach for many row and specialty crops. Download yours today at andersonsplantnutrient.com forward slash high yield. Retired USDA soil scientist Don Rakoski is a leading expert on carbon cycle management in agriculture. An internationally recognized author and speaker, Rakoski was among the first to research the relationship between CO2 and tillage. In this episode of the Strip Till Farmer podcast, Frank Lesseter talks with Don about the research he's conducted over the years, including how he got interested in the carbon cycle and why farmers need to focus on managing it. He explains why it's more complicated than the common perception of carbon sequestration would suggest and discusses how carbon cycling fits into today's carbon credits programs. In addition, Don talks about the role of carbon in climate change, the social implications of using reduced tillage and cover crops, and how sometimes farm management decisions are made using the wrong metrics. Don, tell me a little about your background. Did you grow up on a farm? Where did you go to school? How did you get interested in carbon? Well, uh, that's a a long story, but we could start (laughs) off that I was born and raised in Ohio on a small farm. Uh, When I was going to high school, we got up in the morning to milk 24 cows and with one surge milker. Um, My dad was a part-time farmer. He drove truck for uh, Atlantic and Pacific Groceries, and, and, and we were farm, but... I was pretty proud of my dad. He was the first one to have contour strips mm-hmm. on our farm in uh, in the southern part of Stark County. And that's what started getting me into conservation. And the, uh, the conservation technicians and the conservationists come out and uh, watching what he was doing and making suggestions of changes. And I got acquainted with those guys. And actually, my first job off the farm was a, a student trainee for the Salt and Water Conservation District in Stark County. Okay. And, uh, and that got me started and interested in the soil and protecting it. And so I decided to go to school and went to Ohio State, got two degrees at Ohio State, and then uh, moved on to get the third degree over at the University of Illinois. I took my first job with um, Agriculture Research, ARS, down in Florence, South Carolina, and was there for about nine years before I transferred to Morris, Minnesota, where I am now retired. So I have a total of about 42 years in federal work, and uh, if I add 11 years in retirement, I have a little over 52 years in, in the science game. And you were a soil um, scientist, right? Yes, as a soil scientist with USDA. Right. And so how I got interested in carbon is I, I started off making measurements of evapotranspiration with a portable chamber technique at South Carolina. And I was interested in tillage effects on water use. And uh, we came up to Morris and I was able to pull together enough funds to uh, carry on with the same work with a little more sophisticated equipment. And one day we were uh, out measuring 
the effect of a killing frost on plant respiration. It was on corn stalks, and we wanted to see just how fast the plants died as a result of the, the killing frost of the previous night. And um, we were out there um, making these measurements, and we were getting a lot of CO2 coming off because of, the, of plant respiration. And so we always make a measurement on a on a bare plot as our reference point. So we have a standard condition every time we make any other type of plant measurements. And so we were doing this, and the first day we started off, I got my technicians going, and um, uh, they, they understand they have to calibrate the equipment and calibrate it before they start and calibrate it in the end. So what happened was if the CO2 concentration was about – 350, 355 parts per million, that indicated that was ambient. And when the technician uh, finished up the measurements, he came back up to the lab, was about a quarter of a mile away, and told me the problem. And I said, well, let's, let's calibrate again. So we calibrated it again, and it came up about 355 parts per million. So that didn't think too much about that. And I says, well, I'm not sure what happened. So the next day, we went down to continue the measurements, and exactly the same thing happened. So I was down to the field and trying to figure out what was going on when I recalibrated it, and everything was good, but the concentrations were high. So we looked across the field, and we were on the West Central Research and Outreach fields, and there was a 40-acre field we were adjacent to, and there was a tractor out there pulling a moldboard plow. Mm-hmm. And we were downwind of that. And I said, well, let's go over there and measure what they plowed yesterday. And we did that. And five times we got extra large fluxes. Never had them that large. Mm-hmm. And I says, well, geez, that's kind of strange. So we said, let's go over behind the plow where he goes. And once the tractor got out of the way and the exhaust was out of the way, we made some measurements. And the, the needle just jumped across the thing. And the light went off that there was a big burp of carbon dioxide that comes out of the soil when you till with the moldboard plow. Mm -hmm. Well, that grew into us demonstrating that the CO2 emissions was proportional to the volume of soil disturbed. That plus the understanding that it takes more diesel to plow 10 inches deep than it does to pull a no-till drill And that got the intention of the no-till farmers. And so that data gave the no-till farmers one more reason to do what they do with respect to no-till. And the rest is sort of history from there. So we did several types of experiments, uh, making measurements down in Nebraska. We made measurements in Florida. We made measurements in Arizona. And um, it's basically the same. If you stir the soil... There's this burp of carbon dioxide that comes out, and um, it explains why our soils have lost between 30 and 60 percent of the carbon over the last 250 years of agriculture here in the U.S. So we got onto that, and um, as we learn more and more about it, it becomes very, very important to us uh, from my perspective as a scientist. And so my only claim to fame is (laughs) discovering that burp of CO2 that goes out and that the fact that it's proportional to the volume of soil disturbed. So we had you speak at our no-till conference in uh, Indianapolis two years ago, and then we we had had you speak maybe 15 years earlier 
at one of our no-till conferences, and I think it was in St. Louis. Yes. This, two years ago, there was a great deal of interest in carbon. But when you talk 15 years ago, I think farmers didn't dig the importance of carbon at that time, or they didn't understand it. Well, at at, at that time... Well, they understood a little bit about organic matter, but sure. I think a lot of people were looking at it from the importance of of what can I get paid for carbon sequestration, carbon storage. Right. And back then, it was the Chicago Climate Exchange that had this program that was going. It was the first, uh, well, the first one that I was aware of anyway, a program that was going to be able to provide some incentives for uh, storing carbon. And the only way that you could do that was with, with no-till. Right. And people were doing conservation tillage, but to me, conservation tillage is a is an oxymoron because there's no conservation with any type of tillage when you think of what you're doing to the microbes and the fungi that are in that in that soil. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting how it's come around, and I think the farmers have always had a good understanding about soil organic matter and what it means to them. Uh, but when we started, actually, I think it was the environmentalist that got us thinking about carbon. Well, that soil organic matter is 58% carbon. And the environmentalists are concerned about carbon in the atmosphere c- causing global warming. And, and then the farmers got to saying, well, <laughs> I'm managing those plants to capture that carbon, and we can put it back in the soil. And over the last 10 or 15 years, that evolution has picked up, and and it was evident that no-till was the best way to do that in terms of minimizing the losses. Mm-hmm. But, but the no-till by itself was not the not the complete answer. And now that the fellows are using the biodiversity of the of the cover crop mixes, they are maximizing the carbon input with no-till. They're minimizing the carbon loss. And they get the synergistic benefits of all this diversity and enhanced um, environmental uh, ecosystem services that we all need to maintain good water control on the watersheds and, um, you know, decrease the erosion, decrease water quality, and all those other negatives that are associated with intensive tillage agriculture. All right. Let's talk about carbon terms for a minute. We talk about carbon storage. We talk about carbon cycles. We talk about carbon sequestration. I, I think maybe our people sometimes get confused. What do you think about these terms? Well, I, I think along the same way, I think there is a lot of confusion. And part of it stems from the environmentalist and the, and the people who want to offset the fossil fuel emissions and, and the coal emissions. Um, and they talk about the word sequestration. Well, when I look up the word definition in Webster, the word sequestration means to capture, to hold, and store sort of permanently, keep it enclosed. So if a jury is sequestered, they're put in a room, and they're sort of locked in there so that nobody could get at them and, and bother them and disturb them. And so that's the perception of sequestration in my mind. But in in agriculture, when we understand the carbon cycling, where the carbon is captured in the process of photosynthesis, some goes into the roots, some goes to feed the, the microbes and the fungi there, but a good portion of that carbon goes into the ear of corn that we take and either eat or process or feed the cattle. Mm-hmm. 
And when we capture that carbon, it's also released when we consume it. There's also a release through plant respiration as the organic matter decomposes and it goes back to carbon dioxide. And there's work that shows that when you have a crop and, and some work done in England, they used radioactive tracers to show that when that material was put back on the soil and, and worked in with, with tillage, you lose 70% of the carbon in one year. And so that's what I call the carbon cycling, is, and, and it's the rapid portion of the cycle. So carbon cycling versus carbon sequestration. And so I don't like the term sequestration in agriculture. I mean, we need to do our part for minimizing what goes into the, to the atmosphere from fossil fuels, but I want to maintain food productivity. And the carbon is the energy for this soil plant atmosphere system that produces 95% of the food that we consume. And so when you talk about carbon sequestration, uh, that's good from a fossil fuel standpoint, but from a food production standpoint, I think we need carbon cycling in our agricultural systems. And that's where the little critters in the soil and the concept of living soil is the ones that we're trying to nurture, but they're also helping recycle the nutrients, recycle the carbon to maintain this carbon cycling that's important to us in food production. And so what, what my concern is about the difference is we have people who have been th away from the farm for three generations. And so when they hear the word carbon and they're, they're trying to minimize the fossil fuel that goes in, that says, well, that's bad for the atmosphere. Well, carbon from fossil fuels is a big contributor to the, to the global warming and the greenhouse effect. But carbon in agriculture is the foundation of our food production system, and it needs to be cycled to get the food to come off of this, uh, this living process. And so there's a difference between what we do to sequester carbon from an environmental perspective and what we must do in terms of cycling carbon from a food production perspective. So I, I've heard you speak about uh, one-third of the carbon being in the grain, one-third in the upper part of the plant, and one-third in the root zone. So when we do tillage and we lose this, is it all coming from the root zone? Uh, well, we, we're, we're exporting about one-third of it in the grain. Right. Okay. And then the one-third of the biomass is there. If we till it in, it goes in and it decomposes very quickly. And, you know, occasionally you might see some corn cobs maybe two years after a corn crop. Right. But most of the time it's decomposed relatively rapidly. And that's the part of the cycling that, that is important to us. The, the one-third of the roots is, the, and there's, there's evidence to show that, that the roots are the most important component or con contributor to the soil carbon that's, that stays there. Uh, some of that carbon comes in as exudates like sugary materials, and they talk about a, a cocktail of exudates that uh, are provided for the whole population in the soil in terms of the microbes and fungi and, and um, all the other ones. And, but the, the roots are also a little more tough and tenuous, and so they seem to last a little longer. 
And so there's some work that, well, we wrote an article on it and uh, some Canadian fellows that showed that um, the roots were the largest contributor to the uh, accumulation of soil carbon in any, any system. I take it you're a big believer in, in, in no-till and less tillage, the better. Is that correct? <laughs> well, I, I, I am on a campaign, a one-man band, trying to eliminate the word tillage from our vocabulary. All right. And I'm, um, I'm a proponent of conservation agriculture, the three principles of conservation agriculture, they're also the same three primary principles of soil health and the same three primary principles of regenerative ag. Uh, these two other buzzwords have come on. And I, I, I want to promote a minimum soil disturbance. I want to promote continuous crop residue cover, residue mat on the surface. And then I want to con- promote diverse rotations and cover crop mixes because that's the combination that gets the maximum carbon coming into the system. And with the minimum soil disturbance, it's the minimum carbon loss from the soil system. And so I'm a big promoter of no-till or direct seeding, zero-till, whatever you want to call it. Sure. Uh, but I, I don't like the term conservation tillage for what I already explained to you. So. Right, and, and you're right. So you you talked just a minute ago or so about the value of putting after corn harvest and putting those stalks, getting them into the ground. Um, now a no-tiller would pretty much leave them on the surface. Does that make any difference? No, that's the way. I mean, that the, the the piece of research that I quoted. That's what happened in that research. Okay. But I I don't want that residue incorporated mm-hmm. because I want it there on top of the soil surface. Protecting the soil surface from raindrop impact, protecting a soil surface from temperature extremes, and just being there as a slowly available source of energy for the the, the living soil system. Right. If you incorporate it, you maximize residue soil contact, and you spread a big banquet table out for all the microbes and the fungi that are chewing on that. And it goes out very, very quickly. It de- decomposes very quickly. But if you leave it on the surface for this protection, it's also a slowly available food source where the night crawlers have to come up and get some of it and drag it back down. The microbes at the interface have, a, have an opportunity to get it. And the fungi can expend, extend some of their filaments into it and get what they need out of it. And so from protecting a soil and having a slowly available food source, uh, those two things are pretty important, and that's why we want continuous residue cover, uh, organic residue cover, on on the soil 365 days a year. What about somebody that uh, no tills their beans but uses some type of minimum tillage or strip till on corn? Well, um, strip till is is a, um, a a good practice, and I'm glad to see that there are people doing it. Strip till just minimizes some of the soil disturbance, but not to the ultimate minimum that you can with no no tillage or, or direct seeding. Sure, uh, I'm I'm happy with seeing the people do the strip tillage because it's easier for a farmer to see a small zone of tillage and recognize that there sometimes there is a temperature difference in that thing. Sometimes there's a, um, a increased uh, microbial decomposition 
and faster nutrient release in that same zone. But ultimately, I, I hope that we can get gone to doing it the way Mother Nature does it. She doesn't try to disturb the system and doesn't like to have that kind of, um, of, of disturbance. And so I, I, I'm happy to see the, the guys doing the, the strip till and um, going into less and less volume of soil disturbed. And, and we've made some measurements with that in terms of the CO2 release. It, it releases a heck of a lot less CO2 than a deep ripper and the moldboard plow, which is a real benefit from our perspective. Right. So um, we talked a little bit about cover crops and the value of a mix. Uh, it's been a tough year in agriculture. Some people are probably going to, that have done multi-mixes, may stay with it or they may go to just something simple like cereal rye. Does the mixes make a big difference? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not a farmer, but my observations are that, that biodiversity right. uh, is, is very, very important. And when you have those mixes, um, and I, um, I remember the story I told with, with David Brandt at my talk at your meeting what, two years ago, uh, Dave Brandt somehow picked up on this diversity um, concept very early in, in, in the planning. And, and I asked him, how did he go and get um, that he needed like 15 to 16 species in a mix to, um, uh -huh. to be the right balance? And Dave told me, he says, well, I went out to the woodlot that's not been plowed for 80 years or plowed at all. And uh, I looked around the number of species. And he says, one time I got 16 species, and next time I got 18 species, and next time I got 14 species. And, and he says that uh, that's why Mother Nature did it, and that's why he's doing it that way. Well, I, there, there, I think there's a positive benefit because of the synergistic relationships with the different species, because not all species are going to be performing at the optimum rate at the same time. So when it's a little colder, you get some cool season species that are making a contribution, capturing carbon, gets a little warmer, then the warm season species will kick in and then go through again in, in, in the schools so that you get this diversity and having a small group of plants in that group of 15 right. in the mix that are always working at 100% efficiency for you. But as it, as it turns out, I guess, in, in my observations, the guys have picked up very quickly on cereal rye as being one of the most prolific and the, the one that has the minimum amount of risk with it, other than maybe a little allopathic effect sometimes on, on corn. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but the cover they get, the biomass they get, the physical changes in the soil in terms of the roots and without the tillage, the, the earthworms start to come back and you get the biopore network built up with it. Uh, you know, if you had to pick one crop for here in the Midwest in the Corn Belt, uh, the Surrey Rise is the one that most everybody will go to. But there's other guys that are pushing the limits on these and trying to use other crops to extend the same benefits, even for a period of like as short as two or three weeks. Right. And the, the guys that we mentioned uh, doing this frost seeding, uh, they're picking up 25 to 30 days in terms of extra time to get something to cover the soil. And that's a real benefit from my perspective. Yep, I think you're right. It's unbelievable the results are getting with late February or March frost seeding. And uh, it's, it's amazing that they're, they're getting something 
when it's still cold in this area. Yeah, and they're, they're planting it into snow. And the, the thing that I'm learning about it um, is that, that the small seeds that they're using will eventually make contact with the soil, and if the soil gets a little wet and freeze-thaw, that they will germinate. If you put a big seed, like a, like a corn kernel or a big uh, bean, fava bean or something, uh, they can't make good soil contact, soil seed contact, and uh, they're not as successful in getting that going. And so part of the secret is using the smaller seeds that will tolerate the cold temperatures. And, and now they're identifying winter crops, winter barley, winter camelina, uh, and, and so on that are doing that. And I think that's, that's really a, a step in the right direction. I've made some measurements with the um, uh, some of our weather data here, and in a conventional corn and soybean system, we capture in the sixth month of the growing season, we capture the um, about 61% of the solar energy that comes in at the Morris location. Sure. That means we waste 39% of the solar energy during the the early spring and winter period, and late late uh, fall. And so we, you know, you wouldn't want to spend and waste 39% of your, your bank account. And so we got to find some way to capture that carbon during this off season as best we can, uh, from my perspective, to, to protect the soil surface. We got to stop this erosion. And if we leave the soil bare for even five days, there's a good chance you're going to get a grain and lose some of that soil. And so we need to start using the plants and the diversity we have in the plants, uh, you know, uh, 50, what, 50 or 60 cover crops and, and 10 or 12 major agronomic crops to cover that soil and keep the system operating, capturing carbon, producing food as efficiently as possible. And when we have those plants growing out there, not only we're producing food, but we're also protecting the watershed to try to minimize some of these uh, 10-inch rainfalls that we get in 24 hours that uh, are creating havoc with with some of the fields and, and our uh, river systems. All right. It's interesting when you look at the multi-species. I had somebody a couple years ago, he had done some cover cropping, but it was always a single species mm-hmm. like cereal rye, and uh, he said he... In the fall, he got done. He had maybe 30, 40 acres still to do, and he was practically out of rye. And he went to shed to see what was sitting around and just threw a whole bunch of things into species. He said, I can't even remember what's in there. But in the spring, my gosh, it was better than anything else he had planted. <laughs> yeah, was it was it like uh, wheat, uh, old wheat and Yeah, oh, maybe barley some and, oats or yeah. Rye and, right. yeah he probably done. had some clover sitting around and somebody a couple years ago had uh, told me that he had put 57 species into a mix, (laughs) but I doubt if he remembered how they worked. And then I had another guy I talked to maybe a year ago ago, and we were talking about what each one does. And he says, I said, what about the sunflowers? He says, that makes the neighbors happy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They like to see that thing. Well, I, I, and that's one of the points I try to make is that, we have these plants. These plants have this ability to photosynthesize and to capture carbon. And I think that the plants are very, very important to us in this whole operation. And I, I put together a slide where uh, I call it Plants Matter. Hmm. And on the extreme, 
we have these 300-foot sequoia trees out in California. Sure. They've never been fertilized, never, never tilled, and they capture a tremendous amount of biomass, a tremendous amount of carbon. And that's almost sequestered carbon, but it's still stored carbon because it's a biological thing. But then we come into our 12-foot corn plants, and when we get 200 bushel per acre with that, there's a tremendous amount of carbon that's in that biomass and in the root systems. Mm-hmm. And then we go on down to um, a perennial species that we don't normally harvest, and they're the ones that put 60 to 90% of their biomass below ground, one of the best ways to get carbon into the, to the soil. And then we, we end up with micro miniature plants, a little, I, I use an example of a pygmy weed that's about an inch tall, and it's still capturing carbon. And I take it down one step further to the um, uh, algae, a mm-hmm. single-celled algae. When you have that scum on a pond, is capturing carbon from the air in terms of photosynthesis. So we got this range from a single-celled algae to the sequoia trees, and I don't know how many species in between, where are we going? We just got to get smart enough to figure out how to put the combination together. And if it takes a Heinz 57 variety like you described, uh, that may be an eye-opener in terms of which ones are going to work under the different conditions that we have. Right. And so uh, we, we, we got this plant. It's kind of a miracle plant, and it's doing all this work for us. And so we just got to learn how to use it efficiently. 365 days a year, even though we get 20 below temperatures in in Minnesota. We'll get back to Frank and Don in a moment, but I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, the Andersons, for supporting our Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. A nutrient management program is essential to maximize crop productivity and yields. The key is providing the right nutrients at the right time throughout the growing season. The Anderson's high-yield programs make it easy to plan a season-long approach for many row and specialty crops. Download yours today at andersonsplantnutrient.com forward slash high-yield. Let's get back to the program now as Frank and Don discuss what happens to the soil when it gets plowed. So you talked talked a minute ago about 12-foot corn plants. And there's some uh, genetic companies now trying to reduce the height of corn, uh, get them not to grow that high. Would that make a difference in carbon or not? Um, well, it, it well if they're going to put the the, uh, the stalks back on the soil, mm-hmm. um, I, I I I don't know exactly how they're going to do that. But if it maintains the the most of the plant carbon ranges between 45 and um, 48, 49% carbon. And um, if they just shrink the size of the plant without changing the carbon content, then they're going to have less carbon. I understand the need to try to get more carbon into the ear, the part that they get paid for. Right. But I hope that they don't overlook the value of that carbon feeding the soil biology that circulate in these nutrients. I look at those little critters in the soil as members in a factory and this factory is making nutrients and cycling carbon and cycling nutrients for us and if you want those people to be efficient the members and the working members in your factory you got to keep them happy you got to keep them fed and that's the carbon that from the above ground portion and the roots that contribute to the energy that keeps them going 
And so if you start to cheat a little bit on putting the energy in for the living system and the soil biology, then they're not going to put out as much for you. Sure. And so I don't know what that balance is, but that's the thing that we have to achieve so that we have the whole system operating. And um, I, I'm all for you know getting more yield and more quality yield. But if this if it sacrifices something from the living system in the soil and it causes the soil to degrade because it's not optimizing the carbon, I'd have to think twice about that before right, right. I could I could promote it. So nationwide, maybe eight percent of the farmers in the U.S. are using cover crops, but then our survey of our no-till farmers shows maybe eighty percent are using cover crops, and they're doing a much bigger acreage. Do you think cover crops can catch on with people that are moldboard plowing or doing a lot of extensive tillage? Well, uh, I I I don't think so. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that, that happens is, yes, you incorporate the, the residue with the moldboard plow. You also bury the weed seeds. Sure. And what you do when you bury the residue, you maximize this residue soil contact, and we get a real burst of activity and a burst of nutrient release that does not hang on for the entire following growing season. Mm-hmm. Most of it comes out and comes available before the plants are near their optimum growth to to take up most of the nutrients to fill the ear. And so that's the part of it. And and so by leaving the residue on the surface in terms of a, of a no-till system, it becomes a slow-release form of these nutrients. And there's makes more of them available later in the season, particularly during the, the ear-filling part of the, of the season. The other thing that that moldboard plow does is it also stirs the weed seed bank and brings up a fresh supply of weeds for <clears throat> germination. And uh, we had an example with that. We had uh, into, into a new plot in a pasture, <clears throat> and um, we plowed it to, to get it going and break it out and get it in. And for two years after that, we had um, sweet clover. Mm-hmm. that just came out of this place and we had trouble with that and for two years killing it with roundup we uh, we finally got control of it but the, i think that the cover crops are going to give you more benefit because they last longer in the no-till system and it's more natural in that system i'm coming to the opinion that no-till has worked wonders for a lot of things but no-till by itself is not going to really increase the carbon in the, in the, in the um, corn and soybean rotation. Hmm. Uh, there was some work done from Brazil that to get the carbon to maintain level, they had to have a corn, soybean, and a wheat rotation, and that way they, they were going to maintain the carbon. But the corn and the soybean by itself, um, the soybean is almost carbon negative in that it's got a very narrow carbon to nitrogen ratio and it decomposes very fast. Well, that rapid decomposition also stimulates the bugs so that when they get going, they get in the high gear, they run out of soybean tissue, then they go on to some of the more recalcitrant organic matter that's in the system and take that down and it becomes a net loss as a result of the soybeans. But most of the time, the corn is able to put enough carbon back into the system 
to offset that. Right. So, and I, I appreciate what uh, you have done in terms of recognizing the importance of no-till. And now when these, these cover crops are coming on and the benefits that we're seeing with that in terms of the soil changes and, and that, it's because of the, the cover crops that are coming in there and that additional carving that's coming into the system that really makes that whole thing shine. Right. And uh, there's a lot of history, and there was some work done at Michigan State by um, uh, Phil Robertson's group. Sure, sure, right. And and um, I don't know if you're familiar, but they just published an article, and they got a super-duper way of separating out the factors on that and uh, and looking at variation over periods of years. Anyway, the most recent study, they said it took – and they were just doing no-till by itself with no cover crops. And before they could get a statistically significant difference between the no-till and the conventional till, which was the moldboard plow, uh, it took 11 years with no-till by itself. Mm-hmm. And our, some of the farmers now are using cover crops. They're bragging about changing that organic matter uh, within two or three years. Right. And, and a significant amount of that. But what I hope they understand is that if they take their foot off of the gas pedal with respect to the cover crops and, and the diversity, um, those bugs are going to eat and they'll they'll just drop it right back down. So it comes back to the, the concern about cycling the carbon and sequestering it. And uh, that's why I think that we, we want to keep cycling the carbon in agriculture so that we can put more in, get more out of it in terms of productivity rather than locking it up so that it's not available to the living system. Right. And so um, uh, I, I think it's going to take this combination of um, things. So we, we talk about, you know, resources. And, and the first one that comes important in my mind is the sun, the soil, the water, and the air. Well, in the air, we have oxygen and carbon dioxide, and we have nitrogen. <clears throat> That's important to us. So Mother Nature gives us these resources, and so I I had, a, I had a fifth one to it, and um, it's human intellectual capacity. Mm-hmm. It's our brain power to use those resources. And so that gives us five resources that I think are important. <clears throat> but the one I'm just learning about here in the last five years of my career is, is the importance of biodiversity right. and the ecology of the system that we're trying to to work with and understand. And so this diversity is, to me, is a resource. And so we have to use our human intellect to decide how to apply that biodiversity to optimize and give us a a regenerative production system that's sustainable for future generations. Right. Well, one of the things that we have going today is, I mean, there's a big emphasis and it's well-deserved on soil health. But we've had a lot of no-tillers for years have been doing what we're talking about soil health today. We're talking no-till, we're talking cover crops, diverse rotations. But at the same time, I mean, you talked to, you talked earlier, well, it's about the need for diverse rotations. But in the Midwest, it's tough for some people to grow anything besides corn and soybeans in a rotation because they can't see the economic return to it. Well, unfortunately, I understand the, the need for subsidies, but I would rather see us, our, our government, subsidize putting conservation on the landscape rather than busting the bins. 
Right. And and uh, what what's happening now is some of these guys that are getting into these systems um, and and through the diversity. Uh, yes, it takes a little bit higher level management, but they're they are decreasing their input cost. And uh, one thing I don't understand is is why they other farmers can't see that. If you can decrease your input cost anywhere from forty to fifty percent uh, right. using some anecdotal data, right. it's a no brainer from an economic standpoint. And, and that says nothing about the benefits that the society gets from the lack of erosion, lack of, of degradation in the in the ecosystems. And so uh, we don't have ways to quantify them. Everybody understands dollars and cents, but we don't how to know how to charge for an inch of erosion. We don't know how to charge for an acre inch of runoff that goes to the Gulf of Mexico and right. mucks up the, the um, fishing down there. We don't have a way to put a value on the, the pollution and the algae that's, that's uh, degrading some of the water things. Uh, there's social issues that are involved with that. Um, we, don't, <clears throat> we don't know exactly what's happening with the climate, but uh, uh, what we do know is there's some effect on something's happening because we're getting this, these extremes that are more frequent and more intense. And some of that's coming from the, the greenhouse effect and then the CO2 emissions. So uh, from my perspective, this, this no-till with cover crops or conservation agriculture systems, the immediate decrease in input cost, um, you know, sometimes it's, it's difficult to do that unless you're a fairly large farmer, but everybody seems to neglect the economic value of all this environmental degradation that's going to cost a heck of a lot more to repair than it is to... Uh, try to save it and preserve it for future generations. Right. Well, another problem besides what you mentioned is people don't, an awful lot of people don't understand the nutrient value they're getting out of cover crops and no-till. They're, it's hard to put a value on it. All they see is what the seeding cost was of that cover crop. <laughs> that's that's the easiest one to see. And and the other the other point of that is, is, is the, the NPNK, I think everybody understands that, but the diverse cover crops also brings in the other 20 so some uh, nutrients that include micronutrients like a little bit of zinc and magnesium and cobalt and uh, boron and uh, well, sulfur comes out pretty regular, uh, that those are very important. And, and these cover crops, that's why you want diverse cover crops, because uh, not all cover crops are going to extract the same amount of zinc from the soil or the same amount of phosphorus or whatever. And the diversity in there. Uh, one of those 14 or 15 is going to do a lot of work for you and and make the difference in a bushel or two of yield down at the end of the season. Right. Well, one of the things I've noticed on the no-till conference over the last couple of years is that no-tillers who are there, it's it's tough it's tough times in agriculture. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But the people come to our no-till conference, you don't hear them complaining about the economics of agriculture. They know they got a good thing going. Uh, a lot of people say no-till and cover crops is worth an extra $90 of income or return per acre for me. And it's just amazing that they don't, you don't hear gripes about prices and they're, they're suffering along with everybody else. Well, they're they're but they're not suffering as much as some exactly. of the ones that are, right. that are conventional. And what, what amazes me is uh, some of those speakers you got, the farmers that they come in, 
and they bare their soul. They provide all the detailed, intricate right. information to fellow farmers to try to help them out. Right. And this is the only industry I know that there is this sharing of this information that's so critical in maintaining efficient production. And I really am, am impressed with that. And matter of fact, we're, we're in the process now of trying to develop a farmer-led uh, global network where the farmers will be training other farmers sure. and, and similar to what, what's going on in, with your group here as, as a national group. And the farmer talking to farmer has more credibility than a bureaucrat like me talking to farmers. Yeah, they'll talk and say, yeah, you can talk about the science. But Roberto Peretti sort of makes me feel good. He says, well, the farmers are the researchers out there trying to do their thing, trying and, and making some mistakes. But they learn, and but they're able to see the, the improvement and are able to uh, capitalize on that. They don't necessarily understand how to explain it. And he says, that's the job of the scientist. Right. Let them explain it. And you've got the right combination if at your national conference there that uh, I admire. And I, I just hope that that can go on forever and keep the balance between what you have as, as farmers as the, the keynotes and a, and a few scientists to, to support them. So the role of carbon in global warming, climate change, temperature change... Okay, um, there, there's a lot of debate on that, and but there, there seems to be some sort of correlation. If you take a look at the CO2 concentration as a function of time, over the centuries, it's pretty flat. It was a pretty flat around 280 parts per million, and it's just a measure of the concentration. Well, then when the industrial age started, it started coming up. And uh, when I got around and involved in it, the, the ambient CO2 concentration was about 320 parts per million. And that's, that's about 40 years ago. And from there, th from 320 parts per million, uh, I think in February this year, it was up to like 413 or 14 parts per million. And it's pretty, you know, it's got the annual up and down, up and down, but the trends of the peaks is going up. I think there's some relationship attributed to the CO2 that's into that system. But a lot of that is contributed to the effect of water vapor. Water vapor is a more powerful greenhouse gas than CO2. And the thing that bothers me is that when you increase the air temperature, warm air holds more water than the, the um, cold air. And that increase in the water vapor concentration that's going on with this increase in temperature is, is also contributing. And I, I'm not sure exactly how to separate the water vapor component from the CO2 component. Uh, we know that nitrous oxide is a, has a high uh, global warming potential, and methane has what is that, like 21 global warming potential, and nitrous oxide is 310 or something relative to CO2, which is one. And so those are agricultural gases, but they're still relatively small. And I, the last number I remember that 82% of the greenhouse effect was attributed to carbon dioxide by some of the experts in the, uh, in the climate work. So uh, it's there, and I've, I've seen enough differences to, um, uh, in, in the climate change that um, 
there's, there's something happening, and I, I lump it into climate extremes. And when I saw black Angus cattle bobbing down a stream down by Rochester, Minnesota last spring, <laughs> it's scary about what's right. going on. And they, they got like seven inches of rain in about six hours, and uh, they couldn't get the cattle out of the pasture fast enough. And it was good news to hear that they only lost, I think, two two cattle out of a herd of about 70. That, yeah. And uh, So what what I'm optimistic about is that no-till and cover crops and conservation agriculture is, is the best way to cope with that. I don't know if you heard Game Brown talk. He had one rainfall event that was like 13.5 inches in 22 hours, and on his cover crop field has been cover crops for several years. Every bit of it soaked in. Right. But his neighbor across the road had a pond that brought the ducks in, and the ducks nested that spring to um, – uh, because the water stayed with it there. Right. And so I don't know what the truth is on, on all those measurements, but what I do see is the increased infiltration gives us better opportunities to manage water. And part of that management is influenced by how we manage the crop residue, which is how we manage the carbon, because that crop residue is about 45% carbon. And so it's an energy source for the worms to make biopores to get more water to go in, it's also important to get the tap roots to go down there, and they will help the biopores and make some place for the new microbes to grow. And if you don't disturb it, those biopores will be maintained intact and be there for the long haul. Right. And so it's um, it's the only way we can. Now, there's probably going to be some limit to what we can do with that, uh, but I guess I'm not going to be around long enough to see that time. But uh, right. So... Uh... 10, 12 years ago, the Chicago Commodity Group tried carbon payments, and it didn't go anyplace. And now we've got some groups today. We've had some people at our last couple of NOTO conferences representing uh, carbon payment people. Tell me what's going to happen in this area. Is it going to work? Is there science behind it or what? <laughs> well, I, uh, I, uh, I'm aware of what the Indigo Ag people are doing. There's a group. Uh, Nori out in the Seattle North Pacific Northwest, right. Oregon, and and Oregon, and I'm so I'm a good capitalist, and I believe in capitalism to the point that we need to find some way to incentivize this, mm-hmm. and uh, some farmers can see the benefits and 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 measure it and feel it and smell it, and that's enough for them, but some of them are extra good capitalists and they got to be paid for it. And so this is good, but one of the things that that bothers me is that carbon is so darn dynamic that it makes a difference when you measure it. And I don't think any banker or any organization is going to provide you money to support this without having some quantitative data to show that there's more carbon in the soil and you should be paid a little bit more. It's back to this carbon cycling and carbon sequestration. There's a segment of the population that says, oh, well, we can sequester carbon, and that's going to be good for society. Well, as long as you sequester those fossil fuel, the CO2 from the fossil fuels, you were, we're re-sequestering it because it was pretty well sequestered before we burned it, then that's a good part of it. But there's one farmer feeding 155 people, and the 155 people are being indoctrinated by the environmentalist 
about what needs to be done to take CO2 out of the air. Well, the farmer, one of the 155, he's the one that's managing this carbon cycle in terms of capturing the carbon, and he's the one that needs to optimize that, maintain what's in the soil, recycle it so that we can fuel this cyclic process where we come in and take off some economic yield that becomes our food. And when 95% of our food comes from the soil, we got to protect and maintain that soil. So the, the challenge is for paying for it. Um, I, I don't know exactly how these people are doing it, but some way we have to find some way to get a quantitative estimate and the, the, the duration of the carbon that's in the soil has got to be measured some way. <clears throat> and if you keep putting it in, so you're going to get a pulse, and then, then the bugs are going to chew it up, and then you get another pulse, and the bugs will chew it up, and there should be some sort of an equilibrium. And so how, how to pay for that and when to, to determine when uh, to sample it so that you can be uh, paid for it is, is a real challenge. Um, and I, I hope that there's some young person that's smarter than I am that will <laughs> come up with it because I, I, I think it's, it should be that way. And uh, uh, I hope that there's, they all have good luck with it. And it was unfortunate. There was bad luck with the Chicago Climate Exchange. But um, that's history, and we'll learn from it and move on. So if I get carbon payments for four years, and then I sell the acreage to somebody else, and they do extensive tillage, was mm -hmm. that carbon payment a waste, or was it worthwhile? Well, from a financial standpoint, it was worthwhile right, for right. a little while for you. Right. From a um, uh, psychological standpoint, knowing what you know about carbon in the soil and what I just told you about what plowing does to it, uh, you got a little bit of a, a sore spot in your stomach that uh, doesn't make you feel very good. Right. The thing I'm trying to understand is that I understand in our society, uh, democratic society, that uh, the right of ownership means something. And it becomes a little bit of a debate in my mind that if my food comes from the soil, then I should have something to say about where my food comes from and how it's produced. Right. But in our society, we're privately owned, and the, the guy that owns the land can do what he darn well pleases. Right. And if he's got oil wells on it, he's going to maximize his profit off of that. And if he doesn't have oil wells, well, if you're in Texas, you've got oil wells and cotton fields and corn fields, and uh, those guys are making out pretty good. So I, it's, it's a little bit of a social issue on how they should be reimbursed for it. I think the 155 people that are fed by that farmer can help pay for the benefits that they are getting from it from an environmental standpoint, but they also can pay for it in the quality of the food and the quantity of food that they can get from it. Right. And I, I think that we need to get a little bit more effort on the this nutrient density stuff so that the farmer can be uh, certified for having a certain nutrient density on, on its foods that will give him an opportunity to provide a little premium to the consumer who wants good quality food. Hmm. And not only will we get good quality food, we'll get um, good quality and quantity of food, but we'll also get good quality environment when we look at this system um, of no-till cover crops and continuous cover, so.
you seem to still be the expert in carbon in much of the world or one of the leaders. And why didn't you just totally retire? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a little bit of a labor of love. And then it started back on those contour strips when I was with those guys. And, um, well, it was an ego stroke. Uh-huh. Um, when when uh, Roberto, Roberto's the one that got me invited to Argentina. Sure. And I, my first international talk, I was up and I followed Carlos Gobetto. Have you heard him give a talk? Yes, yes. We've had him at the Notel coverage three or four okay, times. Okay, well, you know how passionate he is. Right. And he got up and started talking, and I was listening to him. And that audience of 1,400 farmers was deathly quiet. You could have heard a pin drop. Mm-hmm. And I got up and I had to follow him. And here I was a young guy in green and never had done anything like that. But I got up and, and had to go through an interpreter. And I thank God for the good interpreter. <laughs> and I, I, I delivered a talk. And after I got done, it was coffee break time. And I must have had 15 or 20 people who couldn't speak English want to ask me questions. And fortunately, there was one farmer that, well, from the U.S. He farms in Argentina and farms here. He come to my rescue and translated for me. And it was a real ego boost to have those farmers understand what I said and asking these these deeper questions. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, geez, if I if I did that good, uh, I need to carry on and continue to do this. Well, you're way ahead of the game. You've done very well. There's a lot of great information in here for our listeners. And I want to thank you for doing, taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it, Don. Thanks a lot. And we'll keep in touch. Okay. Take care. Bye. Mm-hmm. Bye now. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Don Rakowski for this informative conversation about carbon cycling. And thanks to our sponsor, The Andersons, for helping to make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Don Rakowski and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Julia Gerlock. Thanks for tuning in.